Well, as St. Francis de Sales said this morning, love is the virtue and devotion is its practice. He says that devotion is putting the love of God into practice. And that is so true. You know? It was that, with that in mind that uh, Dom Chatard wrote the beautiful book, The Soul of the Apostolate, because he realized exactly what St. Francis de Sales said, that devotion is putting into practice the love of God. Now, you might say religion is all about that. There are those today who say that they are spiritual but not religious. It's hard to understand what they mean by that because religion is actually putting a faith into practice. It's a practice of a faith. So if they say they're spiritual, are we to give, give the idea that they have some kind of faith but they're not religious insofar as they don't practice it. Well, those who have a certain faith, but who don't practice it, are known as hypocrites. It's difficult to know what people today are thinking because it's very difficult for them to think. They haven't really been trained or taught to think rationally. You, on the other hand, hopefully, can help people find their way and help them understand you know, religion comes from the Latin words re and ligare. Ligare means to bind or to tie. And re means again. So religare means to tie up or bind together again. And that is the very essence of religion, that it, it is meant to bind us together with God. It is meant to tie us back to God. It carries a certain idea of ourselves as boats that have broken loose from their moorings and are just adrift and eventually left to be smashed on the reef, broken apart on the shore. It gives the idea that we are, as it were, horses who have taken, torn loose and are wandering. And all too often, even like wild horses doing a great deal of damage. And we are. That's how we are. Because of sin, we are, as it were, broken loose or torn loose from God. We are adrift. And religion is meant to bring us back and bind us back to God again. Now, our Lord's sacred heart is the focus of this time. We have celebrated last Friday the feast day of the sacred heart of Jesus. It has an octave. Tomorrow, Friday, will be the octave day of the feast. It will also be the vigil of St. John the Baptist. And so the, the octave day will be celebrated at the altar and the vigil of St. John the Baptist will be commemorated by the second oration, but also by this special last gospel. In fact, we find our retreat, in a sense, framed between the feast day of St. Aloysius Gonzaga 
and St. John the Baptist, two very different men, very different personalities, but both of them real men. Why? Because they achieved that manhood that comes from a great self-control. St. Aloysius Gonzaga, living in the world of his time, had enormous self-control so that he was not, as it were, as St. Francis Sales spoke this morning, he was not consumed by the flame. This is how truly in St. Aloysius Gonzaga, this young man, this young Jesuit, our Lord's words realized he was in the world, but not of the world. And so we might say of St. John the Baptist, there's a man who is martyred for purity of life, purity of the married life. He was martyred for denouncing the scandal of his time. Herod, the king, had taken his brother's own wife. Herodias had left her husband Philip to join his brother Herod. And we know that this caused a great scandal, but there was one man who was willing to lift his voice and condemn the scandal, and that was John the Baptist. Truly, representing the finest in manhood, our Lord even said of John the Baptist that there is no greater man born of woman than St. John the Baptist. Well, we have these two men provided for us at the beginning at the end of the retreat to remind us what is expected of us that we are meant to practice our love for our Lord, to put it into practice. That is primarily, again, through our religion and the works of religion, the works of mercy, corporal and spiritual works of mercy. On the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, last Friday, the epistle was taken from the Epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 3. And in that epistle, we read about the length and height and breadth and depth of the love of God. No wonder that epistle is taken by the church on the Feast of the Sacred Heart. But also, there is mention in that epistle of the paternity of God, the fatherhood of God. And uh, it is said in that epistle that all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named after the fatherhood of God. And that is the focus of this talk now, the fatherhood of God. You know that all fatherhood, yours and all those who've gone before you, the fatherhood that brought you into existence, that fatherhood is broken, broken by sin. All fatherhood in heaven and earth is named after the fatherhood of God, and so it was meant to be something very beautiful as God's own fatherhood. And yet, our fatherhood is broken. It is broken by sin. The fatherhood of Adam, the father of all, the father of all human beings, sinned, and in doing so, he broke his own fatherhood. He broke it from the fatherhood of God and uh, made a caricature of fatherhood. Soon thereafter, we see brother rise against brother and murder him, Cain versus Abel. We see the de degeneration, really, of the human race 
even as the human race was, race was being generated, we see it being degenerated too by sin. Truly all fatherhood on earth, fatherhood of creatures, is broken. And when I say fatherhood of creatures, I mean of men. The angels do not have fatherhood or motherhood. Only you and I and our fellow human beings can claim that honor of being able to evoke from Almighty God the creation of a new soul, like the creation of an entire world, and demand that of God by generating a child. God has given us that power over himself, actually. And yet we have taken that power and abused it so, so egregiously, so wantonly, so criminally. No wonder we find God destroying entire cities because of sins of impurity. Sodom and Gomorrah were incinerated because they were burning with the sin of lust. And so God burned them. <clears throat> burned them to ash. Almighty God would have spared them all of that, all of that sin. God would have spared them if they'd been able just to find ten just men. Just ten, ten just men. They couldn't even find those to stand up against this, against this evil, <clears throat> to speak out against it, to take a stand against it, to raise their voices against it for the sake of appealing to those who are innocent before they sink into the quicksand of lust. Even ten just men, there were not ten just voices found to be raised to practice, to put their belief into practice and take a stand as it behooves men to do. Tragic to think that two cities would be incinerated because there were not even 10 just men among them. It's a lesson for today too of what can happen with these sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. There are not, again, just men willing to stand for what is right and for the love of God. Truly, our fatherhood is broken. But our Lord Jesus Christ came to repair that. He came back to rebind us, as it were, to God the Father. Now, it might be somewhat difficult for people in the world today who did not have a good relationship with their fathers to really appreciate the significance of this. When, when we say that our Lord came to reconcile us to the Father, when our Lord came to bind us, rebind us to the Father, those who have not had a very loving relationship with their own fathers might have a difficult time relating to that idea of the fatherhood of God. And that's tragic. But it's not irreparable. After all, the point of our Lord's coming was to take us to the Father and reunite us to the Father. 
And so that already implies that there's a certain separation, there's a certain, as I say, brokenness in the fatherhood relationship already that to some extent we all experience. And there's a certain longing for the approval and the love of a true father. And no one feels it more acutely than those who don't have it, who never had it, but still crave it. And so our Lord himself is the only one who can restore that bond with a true father. He can teach us what true fatherhood is, and that is exactly why he came to earth, to to direct us to the Father, to take us to the Father, to give us access to the Father. This was his point in coming. Now, you know that it is impossible for God to have a relationship with any of his creatures. In the philosophical sense, a relation or a relationship involves some kind of limitation on those who are related to each other. It, it affects them, it changes those two who are related. The relationship between father and son, for example. <clears throat> a relationship between father and son, relationship between son and father, they're not the same relationships, of course, but <clears throat> they involve something that happens to the father and happens to the son. But when it comes to Almighty God, we cannot say that he has a relationship with any of his creatures in the sense that we can change him in any way, add to him something that is not already there. As though we somehow bring to him a perfection that is not already his in eternity. We cannot do that. No creature can do that. In that philosophical sense of relationship, it's impossible for God to have a relationship to be related in any way such that he is limited by or added to due to a relationship with any creature because he's absolute perfection. But that, at the same time, takes nothing away from his love for us. His love for us is real, it is powerful. It is the love of an infinitely powerful will it is the love of infinite goodness for us as creatures, in whom he's invested that goodness. He's invested his own perfections in us by his creative act, let's say. And so there is, in a broad sense, certainly, that connection with Almighty God, that he has moved to send his own divine Son into the world to be our Redeemer and suffer for us. Truly, that goes beyond the very concept of relationship in many philosophy. It is something that is supernaturally powerful. And as such, is something that we can't actually even begin to conceive of, the love of God that would motivate this. So, we, on the other hand, in a philosophical sense, <clears throat> Our entire existence is about our relationship with God. Our entire being is exactly about that, our relationship with God. It is for that purpose that we are created, our relationship with God, and it must change us. It must demand something of us 
And it must add something to us, that relationship with Almighty God, a relationship of divine grace. How wonderful that is. We see this especially at the Last Supper. You know, there, <clears throat> there are many mentions of the relationship between ourselves and our Creator, between ourselves and our Redeemer. There are many, many mentions of this. <clears throat> we see the relationship that we have with God as Father. We see that in the Gospels. We see it in the Gospel of St. Matthew. We see it very much especially in the Gospel of St. John the Apostle. We see it in the epistles of St. John, three of them. We see it in the writings of St. Paul, who speak of the Father very often, who direct us to the Father. Especially St. John the Evangelist, especially St. John the Apostle, speaks of it very powerfully, very beautifully. And there, especially in his discourse to his apostles at the Last Supper, that entire discourse of St. John the Apostle, as he relates our Lord's words to the apostles at the Last Supper, that entire discourse is focused on the Father. It's a discourse given to the apostles, but it's really not about the apostles is it a discourse given by our Lord, but it's actually not even about our Lord. What our Lord is doing in his discourse to the apostles at the Last Supper, his last great sermon to them, is to focus their attention on the Father. As he himself, Jesus our Lord, is focusing his attention during that discourse on the Father. Now you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, St. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. How well you are familiar with it. Beginning with the eight Beatitudes and going on and telling us now about the new law of Christ, the New Testament with its new law. That was a real sermon insofar as it was a, a lesson that our Lord gave and there were no interruptions. Our Lord wasn't engaging in a kind of repartee with those who heard that sermon on the mount. He was lecturing them. But when our Lord sat down at the Last Supper with his apostles, it wasn't actually a sermon. That's why it's called a discourse, not a sermon. And in that discourse, we find the apostles responding to our Lord, asking him questions. And our Lord answers them. Our Lord, in a sense, is inviting them because he says they are friends and their love for him makes them beloved by the Father himself. And so with his 12 apostles, he has a unique relationship as their Lord and Savior. His humanity has a unique relationship with his apostles whom he calls. And so he reclines with them at the table. He partakes of supper with them and says he longed to do it, even though he knew what came next. He would give them his own body and blood as their food and drink and fulfill the promise that he made a year before to do just that, to give them his own body and blood as their nourishment of body and soul. So our Lord fulfilled that at the Last Supper. 
But our Lord's discourse to them centered on the Father. And we need to understand that because it should be the centerpiece of our Catholic devotion. And if we don't, if we don't understand this, if we don't see that focus of our Lord on the Father, his own focus as the Divine Son, and his effort to have his apostles turn their attention and their devotion, telling them at the Last Supper that they must go to the Father, that they have access to the Father, that the Father loves them because they have loved him, his own Son, Jesus. And that means that the Father loves them for their love of his Son, Jesus, their Savior. Our Lord, therefore, is directing their attention to the Father. He's directing them to go to the Father. And as I stand at the altar during the Mass, that is very much in my mind, and no doubt in the mind of all the priests, that I am here because our Lord Jesus Christ has sent me. He has directed me to be here for the sake of addressing the Father. In the next conference this afternoon, we'll look at the the Mass to see exactly how that is fulfilled in the Mass, how our Lord's discourse to his apostles at the Last Supper really is fulfilled in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And if we don't see that, we don't understand it, if it doesn't animate our devotion, then we've missed something really significant, something of great importance to our Lord. We've missed the point of his words to them at the Last Supper. That would be really tragic for Catholics to miss that. Now look, in saying this, I'm not revealing anything that's unknown. I'm not revealing anything hidden. I'm not discovering any new truth. That's it. That's not possible. All I'm doing is pointing out the obvious. I'm just pointing out the obvious. But the reason why I'm pointing it out is because <clears throat> not long ago, <clears throat> when I pointed it out, people were expressing their surprise. People told me they had never really heard that before or thought of it that way before, which amazed me. And I thought that this is unfortunate because it's the centerpiece, the cornerstone of our Lord's life, death, and resurrection. It's the cornerstone of our worship at the Holy Sacrifice. It's the whole point, you might say. <clears throat> so look at our Lord's words here. You know that the, the discourse of our Lord at the Last Supper <clears throat> takes up almost one-fourth of St. John's entire gospel. The other apostles, the other evangelists, I should say, only mention the consecration, essentially. They mention the consecration of the bread and wine transubstantiated to the body and blood of Christ. That is pretty much the limit of St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke's treatment of the Last Supper. But St. John writes his gospel as the very last book of the Bible to be written. It wasn't the Apocalypse. It was the gospel of St. John. <clears throat> and in that gospel, he records what the apostles had been preaching all this time, but it had not been written down yet in the gospels of St. Matthew or St. Mark or St. Luke. And so St. John takes pains at his advanced age to make sure 
that the words of our Lord to his apostles are recorded, that what the apostles have been preaching all this time, and that the Catholics knew in the first century very well, directly from the mouths of the apostles, would be recorded for you and me today, so we could see what our Lord said to them at that Last Supper. We find in chapter 13, the Last Supper beginning, the report of St. John about the Last Supper begins in his chapter 13. And it begins with our Lord washing the feet of the apostles. And it says that our Lord raised himself from the supper and then tied a towel around his waist, took a basin of water and a ewer, that is a pitcher, and went first to Peter. And Peter objected. And our Lord said, if I wash you not, you have no part with me. Now, again, Peter was a very willful individual. And yet, with great difficulty, he would bend his will to the will of Christ. But it took a great deal of effort for Peter to do that. He was a very self-willed individual. But he would use that will, that strong will now, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after Pentecost, he would use that will now in order to serve God's will, not his own. The transformation is quite remarkable. But we see at the Last Supper that self-will of Peter objecting to what our Lord is doing. Now, after that, after our Lord had washed the feet of the apostles, he said these words in chapter 13, Know you what I have done to you. You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then I, being your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that as I have done to you, so you do also. So we see this example that Peter, that our Lord gave to Peter and the other apostles. And we find here our Lord mentioning the Father and obedience to the Father only twice. We go from what we know as chapter 13 of St. John's Gospel to the next chapter, chapter 14. And now we find our Lord launching into his discourse. And when we find our Lord's words of his discourse, and especially at the very beginning, we see the intense focus of our Lord on the Father. I wonder if you can actually count these. I'm going to read chapter 13 of St. John to you. And I wonder if you can tell me how many times in this one chapter of 31 verses our Lord uses the term actually speaks the word father, pater. How many times does he actually speak of or to the father during this 31 verses of this one chapter of St. John's Gospel? Here's what our Lord said. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If not, I would have told you, because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I shall go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you also may be. And whither I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas saith to him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would without doubt have known my Father also. And from henceforth you shall know him, and you have seen him. Philip saith to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus saith to him, Have I been so long a time with you, and you have not known me? Philip, he that seeth me, seeth the Father also. How sayest thou, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but the Father who abideth in me, he doeth the works. Believe you not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise believe for the very works' sake. Amen, amen, I say to you, he that believeth in me, the works that I do, he also shall do, and greater than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you shall ask me anything in my name, that I will do. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, nor knoweth him. But you shall know him, because he shall abide with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But you see me, because I live, and you shall live. In that day you shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved by my Father. And I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith to him, not the Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself to us, and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If any one love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and will make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my words, and the word which you have heard is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things have I spoken to you, abiding with you. But the paraclete, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your mind, whatsoever I shall have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, do I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. You have heard that I said to you, I go away, and I come unto you. If you love me, you would indeed be glad, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it shall come to pass, you may believe. I will not now speak many things with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and in me he hath not anything. But that the world may know that I love the Father, 
And as the Father hath given me commandment, so do I. Arise, let us go hence. In these 31 verses that I've just read to you, comprising chapter 13 of St. John's Gospel, the name of the Father is mentioned 23 times at least in 31 verses. 23 times. You see, the focus really constantly returns to the Father. Our Lord himself says that he is going to the Father, and it is out of love for his Father that he obeys. The words that he speaks are the words of the Father, he says. The works that he does are the works of the Father, he says. And so our Lord actually applies the same standard to his own apostles. He says, as I love the Father and do my Father's will, so if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Our Lord ties all of that together. He even goes as far as to say, as I am in the Father and you are in me. The point, again, is what our Lord is doing here on this earth, not just at the Last Supper, but the point he's making here is the reason why I am here, the reason why I, the Son of God for eternity, have taken flesh and taken human nature, is to do the will of the Father. I'm here for that purpose, to do my Father's will, in love and adoration of my Father. There is only one person <clears throat> to whom our Lord Jesus Christ himself prayed. And we often see Jesus, our Lord, praying, praying to the Father. We never see him praying to the Holy Ghost. No, he will send the Holy Ghost as though he has some authority to do so. And indeed he does. But to the Father, even he, Jesus our Lord, the Son of God incarnate, he prays. He prays a thanksgiving. And the Mass reflects that in the Holy Eucharist. It is a giving of thanks that the Son of God gave to the Father. If the Father himself is the focus of our Lord, and he is trying to enable us to know this Father and to go to him, to see the Father reflected in himself, then we have to listen to what our Lord is telling us. We have to follow what he's saying here. In the entire sermon, the discourse of our Lord at the Last Supper, the, the Father is mentioned over 50 times. The Father is mentioned over 50, 50, approximately 55 times throughout that discourse of our Lord at the Last Supper. And uh, it is because our Lord is telling us, telling us, directing us, ordering us, go to the Father, go to the Father. He loves you. He loves you as a personal love for you because of your love for me. Now, you, you dads, you understand that. <clears throat> there may be people you personally don't have any particularly uh, great relationship with, but one thing you do appreciate in people, and that is if they love and respect your children, those who actually give of themselves for the benefit of your children, you appreciate that. And that awakens a kind of perhaps even remote relationship with those people who love your children and care for them with a love of well-wishing that they would 
want your children's good and even sacrifice of themselves for the benefit of your children, to teach them, to help them grow. You love those who love your children. Well, multiply that infinitely so in the Father of Almighty God, our Lord, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When our Lord says, because you love me, my Father loves you. And how true that is, that the Father really does love those who love his Son. And because of that love, that mutual love, that the Father bears his Son and that you and I bear to his Son, because of that connection, you and I have access to the Father. We can go to him, speak to him, ask of him. That's a wonderful thing. Our Lord does not just recommend that. He commands us. He commands us to go to the Father. Which is exactly what we do in the Holy Mass. Now, our Lord concludes his discourse at the Last Supper by a prayer. <clears throat> and that prayer is recorded in St. John's Gospel. And again, I do want to read that to you. Because here our Lord concludes the Last Supper with a prayer to the Father for his apostles, and by extension for you and me, too. And at the end of that prayer, our Lord is going to leave that upper room and go to suffer. So this is a very significant prayer of our Lord for his apostles at this time. This is what he said. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he may give eternal life to all whom thou hast given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now glorify thou me, O Father, with thyself, with the glory which I had, before the world was with thee. I have manifested thy name to the men whom thou hast given me out of the world. Thine they were, and to me thou gavest them, and they have kept my, thy word. Now they have known that all things which thou hast given me are from thee, because the words which thou gavest me I have given to them. And they have received them, and have known in very deed that I came forth from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them, whom thou hast given me, because they are thine. And all my things are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am not in the world, and these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, to keep them in thy name, whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we also are. While I was with them, I kept them in thy name. Those whom thou gavest me have I kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture may be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy filled in themselves. I have given them thy word, 
and the word the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, as I also am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil. They are not of the world, as I also am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, and I also have sent them into the world, for them do I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And not for them only do I pray, but for them also who through their word shall believe in me. They, that they all may be one as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we also are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast also loved me. Father, I will that where I am, they also, whom thou hast given me, may be with me, that they may see my glory, which thou hast given me, because thou hast loved me before the creation of the world. Just, Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have made known thy name to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now these 26 verses of St. John's 17th chapter bring to a conclusion of our Lord's words at the Last Supper. And the last words that our Lord spoke at the Last Supper were not spoken to the apostles. They were spoken as a prayer to God the Father. What was he praying? He was praying for his apostles. And notice how he prays that God would keep them, that the Father will keep them, that the Father will keep them one in faith, that the Father will keep them united in the truth, he says, the truth of God, God's faith. It is for that that our Lord said, I will send from the Father the Holy Ghost, who will unite you in the truth, who will keep you in the truth. Whatever I've taught you, he will bring to your minds and keep you on track, as it were the track of the truth that I've taught. Our Lord speaks of this very urgently, and you can tell, even though it's a translation, it's, it's an English translation, and all translations fail to really adequately convey the, shall we say, the full meaning, import, intensity of the moment. Nonetheless, this is the best we can do, to read in translation our Lord's words, and still we see, again, the intensity of our Lord's wish, for his apostles, that the Father would keep them from evil. Even though they are in the world, they should not be of the world any more than our Lord himself was. Now, we see in the sacred scripture, Almighty God as addressed as, by various titles, we see God addressed as Adonai, uh, Lord, Kyrios. Kyrios, we have the word in the gospel in Greek. We have the word in the canon, I'm sorry, in the, in the Mass, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. So in the, in the Gospel, or I should say in the Sacred Scripture, Almighty God is addressed as Adonai and Lord. We find Almighty God addressed as Elohim, Elohim, the Mighty One, 
mighty God, Elohim. We see God addresses Elohim, the mighty one, 2,750 times in the Old Testament alone. The mighty one, the one of mighty deeds. We see Almighty God addressed by the word Elion, the most high Elion. And yet, only with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ do we find him addressed as Father. That he's addressed as Father. And this is what our Lord instructs us. Not only to call God the Father, his Father, by that title, but to regard him as such, as Father. And it is a fatherhood that uh, transcends this world, obviously. It is a matter of love. Begins with his love for us, sending his son to us, and our love for his son. Now we need to take to heart what our Lord is saying here. We have to understand that at the Last Supper, our Lord is saying, I am going to suffer, I'm going to die. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to die out of love. We focus on that, that our Lord is there, that he's dying on the cross. But we have to see where he refers our attention, where our Lord's attention is as he's on the cross. And our Lord's attention, while he's on the cross, begins with and ends with the Father. Our Lord's first word on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And indeed, this is the purpose of our Lord's crucifixion and redemptive death on the cross. The first thing he asks for us is forgiveness, is God's mercy. And the last thing he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so we find that our Lord's attention on the cross, yes, he speaks for himself, I thirst. He speaks of St. Uh, John the Apostle and the Blessed Mother giving them to each other. He does. But our Lord's focus and where he wants us to realize is his focus, where he wants to turn our attention is to the Father because what he's doing on the cross there, he's doing for the Father. He's doing in the name of the Father and to fulfill the Father's will. Yes, the holy sacrifice is there. But remember, we see in our Lord the one who is the sacrifice. He is also the one who offers the sacrifice. And he is the one who brings the intention of the sacrifice. But the sacrifice itself is offered to the Father. And that's where our Lord wants our attention to go. He wants our attention to go to the Father. Uh, if we fail to do that, if we fail to direct our attention there, as he, our Lord himself directs our attention to the Father, well, we'd have to say we missed the point. That's where our Lord himself gave all of his attention, and that's where he wants you and me to do it also, to recognize the reason why he died, on the cross was to offer to the Father that sacrifice. So our gaze has to follow our Lord's own gaze to the Father. Time and time again, we read at the end of our prayers, through our Lord Jesus Christ, thy Son. And what this means is, we have just prayed a prayer 
that is directed to the one who is the father of the son mentioned through our Lord Jesus Christ, thy son. That tells us that that prayer was directed to the father. And how many times do we end our prayers with that saying, Paradominum nostrum, Jesum Christum, Filium tuum, thy son. And do we really realize, does it even occur to us, that I have just directed a prayer through the Son of God to the Father in Jesus Christ's name? And if I don't go, therefore, in my thoughts and my affections, that's what prayer is made of, right? If I don't go through our Lord Jesus Christ, thy Son, to the Father, where am I directing my prayers? Are my prayers even directed? Well, this is the mind of the church here. We'll take a look at that, that we realize that and accomplish that in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass so that we can understand it better and appreciate it more, more fully. This is, this is not only our Lord's devotion. This was the great devotion of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about the word devotion, and we hear St. Francis de Sales talking about that. True devotion. And we find that this was the devotion of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's the devotion that he came to teach us. It's a devotion that he wants you and me to have. It's essential to being a good Catholic in faith and its practice, our religion. So we need to cultivate a real devotion to God the Father uh, in order to, to really fulfill to fulfill our Lord's mission in us, we need to cultivate a real devotion to God the Father in our prayers and in our actions. So, um, uh, Next time, I ask you to bring your missiles, bring your mass missiles with you to the conference at 2 o'clock because we're going to take a look at the mass, the ordinary of the mass, to see how the church prays in the mass. I'm not suggesting that you've been, not been following the Mass or have been, been following the Mass in your missiles all this time. But it occurs to me from the reaction of some of people that although they have been devoutly following the Mass, there are certain things that have never been pointed out to them, certain things that uh, they really need to keep in mind in order to really understand the significance of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. So please bring your missiles with you when we reconvene for the 2 o'clock conference. And I ask you to take some time now and uh, to, um, you know, a few minutes in the chapel, and then we have the rosary at 1130. Uh, Mr. Whitman, thank you for leading, leading that rosary. I'll be in the confessional at 1130 for those who'd like to come.